This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for March 11th, 2019. Many film actors, and maybe Hollywood in general, is known for support of liberal and progressive causes. But where does that leave someone who covers Tinseltown from a conservative point of view? Let's find out. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic. What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Here's what we've got coming up for you in this podcast. Lions for Lambs by Richard, by Robert Redford. There are thousands of films made, but the very big blockbusters that involve the U.S. military are incredibly supportive of the military. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, I could say the Transformers films are, are very popular overseas, and there's mm-hmm. a pro-military bent there, too. But I think we're talking sort of different subject, because I think a lot of times – Hollywood knows what sells and what sells overseas. That's coming up shortly. But first, I want to thank all of my supporters on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who contributes. If you don't know, Patreon is basically a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. And that helps me to devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same, there are details on the website and at the end of this show. Clement Attlee, the British World War II Labour Party leader and minister, was once quoted by Margaret Thatcher, the Conservative Party leader of the 1970s and 80s in Britain. They both agreed that referendums are, this is the quote, a device of dictators and demagogues. It's not surprising that Attlee took that opinion. In the middle of World War II, Britain was fighting Germany, led by Hitler, who had legitimised his seizure of power by referendum. The Germans have learned that lesson. Nationwide referendums are now prohibited by the constitution in Germany. In contrast, in neighbouring Switzerland, which is mostly German-speaking, Referendums are a regular occurrence and accepted part of the political process. Also, referendums are very rare in the UK. They've only had three in their history. While they're a regular occurrence next door in Ireland, they've had more than one per year so far this century. If you've been paying attention, you probably know that the most recent referendum in the UK, the Brexit referendum, is causing them particular difficulty. Britain, for the next week or two, is part of the EU. Two and a half years ago, Britain voted to leave. They voted for Brexit. Or, to be more precise, they voted against continuing their membership of the EU. Therein lies the problem. Britain being in the EU was a known quantity, but people voted for an unknown A whole host of contradictory and impossible promises were made by people campaigning to leave the EU. Different politicians, nominally allied to each other, promised that Britain would and would not leave the single market that allows all EU businesses to trade with each other without tariffs or regulatory barriers. 
different politicians and sometimes the actual same individual politicians at different times said that leaving the EU would and would not mean an end to the freedom of movement whereby citizens of any EU countries can study, work and settle in any other EU country. It seems to have come as a surprise to all of them that an end to this arrangement might cause problems for the two million British people who live in Spain, France and other EU countries. Look out for votes in the British House of Commons this week to try to sort out exactly what leaving the EU means. There'll be a series of votes starting on Wednesday evening UK time and lasting the rest of the week, with options ranging from delaying and perhaps scrapping the Brexit plan altogether, to accepting a deal negotiated by UK Prime Minister Theresa May, which would essentially leave the EU with only slightly reduced access to the EU in return for following the various rules of that club, rules that the UK now has no role in making, to perhaps doing what is called crashing out. This means essentially turning the UK into a sort of North Korea with no established trading rules with anywhere and having to start that process from scratch. Any one of those options could be viable with enough time to prepare, but the bottom line is that in nearly three years, the UK has not managed to decide which of those options to seek, so preparing for even one of them in less than three weeks seems optimistic, to say the least. But my real point here is that established political practices work for a reason. The mess over Brexit happened because the UK is unfamiliar with holding referendums. They haven't really settled on a way of doing it. In particular, they don't have any mechanism to prevent people from having the option of voting for something that's impractical or even flat-out impossible. Countries like Ireland and Switzerland, which regularly have referendums, have developed mechanisms so that people are voting between two plausible, thought-out options. There's clarity on the result of either outcome, and on top of that, the electorate is familiar with the process they know the result of their likely vote. Stalin once said, those who vote decide nothing, those who count decide everything. Maybe, but in referendums, those who frame the question have power and responsibility, and if they get it wrong, it leads to all types of headaches. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now is Christian Toto. He's the editor of HollywoodInToto.com. He's also an award-winning movie critic and presenter of the Hollywood in Toto podcast. Christian, you've said that uh, a lot of conservatives complain about liberal news bias and that there's the same thing in entertainment news. Can there really be a political bias in entertainment news? There really can be. And I think often the bias you see in the news is as much as what you see and how it's tilted as what's missing in the different reports. And uh, I'll give you a recent example. Uh, Penthouse Magazine recently rebooted their website and they launched it with this story about Judd Apatow, a very talented writer-director, 
responsible for some some of the biggest comedies in recent years. And he's gotten very, I guess you could say, woke of mm-hmm. late. And he's been very critical of Louis C.K. for some of his recent comment, commentary. Mm-hmm. And what that particular penthouse writer did is look back at Judd Apatow's past, some of his stand-up material, some of his movies, and said, wait a minute, a lot of your material in recent years has been rather offensive, rather sexist, and not really in line with what you're preaching these days, and sort of drawing the comparisons and saying, you know, why are you being hypocritical, which I think is a valid point. And listen, I've been very critical of this outrage culture where you can't say certain things, you can't joke about certain topics. So that particular article really brought that to light. Now, I actually covered a very similar topic a few weeks ago at my website, and yet most mainstream media outlets are ignoring this story, even though hypocrisy, especially from someone like Judd Apatow, who's a huge name in comedy circles, mm-hmm. you think would be catnip. So that's just a quick example of what's going on in the media. Now, Judd Apatow is left of center. He's been very uh, vocal about his hatred for President Trump. That's mm-hmm. all well and good. He's a, He can say what he wants. But my thesis is that people like him are offered a bit of protection from the media, whereas if it was a right-of-center star like a James Woods, the veteran character actor, if mm-hmm. he said something outrageous or silly or or mean, it might get more media traction. So that's just a quick example of what I've witnessed over the years. Oh, okay. And I kind of get your point. And of course, you know, if you just look at political endorsements, it's blindingly obvious that Hollywood skews liberal and probably skews left as well. But are you sure that that comes through? Because if you look at American influence within the United States, that's one thing. But if you look at American cultural influence outside of the US, the way that American culture marshals support as soft power for the United States, it is incredibly powerful. And the US couldn't possibly hope for a more nationalistic or more American supporting and more effective American supporting media than they have. That's true, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's a different issue from bias in the media. And I do I do completely agree that the soft power that Hollywood has is rather impressive. I mean, our cultural products are out all over the world. So if we have a story, if we have a film franchise, if there's a TV show that gets you know worldwide coverage, yeah, that message will get out there. But, you know, and often in recent years – there's been a sort of an anti-U.S. military bent to certain films. So that's that's changing of late. It was more prevalent during uh, when President George W. Bush was in office. So, yeah, really? no, I, the, the, the Black Hawk Downs were an anti-military. Well, I mean, look at Stop Loss, like in the Valley of Elah, look at Redacted. Uh, there's a couple others. Um, Green Zone with Matt Damon as well. Um Lions for Lambs by Richard, by Robert Redford. There are thousands of films made, but the very big blockbusters that involve the U.S. military are incredibly supportive of the military. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, I could say the Transformers films are, are very popular overseas, and there's mm-hmm. a pro-military bent there, too. But I think we're talking it's sort of different subject, because I think a lot of times Hollywood knows what sells and what sells overseas, and so the buck matters more than anything. So if it's a movie with a, a pro-military theme, they're going to push it. But I'm talking more about the sort of the political statements of sp- specific actors and how the Hollywood media covers those things. And just to give you another quick example, uh, Judd Apatow, I believe mm-hmm. was, I think he talked about how, 
you know, President Trump was going to uh, start Nazi Germany 2.0. And there's been a lot of really hyperbolic statements made by specific actors. Uh, Ellen Barkin recently intimated she wanted President Trump killed and then later said she wanted that she wanted Louis C.K., the comedian, to be raped and shot at. And those two stories got little to no media coverage. So that's okay, again okay. what I'm talking pause, about. Pause on that. And, and it's going to be easy for either you or me to find instances, specific instances of somebody being very biased in one particular direction or somebody not being criticized when they might be, where that shows perhaps an inconsistency. But mm-hmm. it, um, it's difficult to get the totality of that. You would accept though the totality of the output of Hollywood is something that is supportive of what might broadly be called American nationalism. Well, you know, I cover movies a lot. I, I, you know, the messages I get is is a different sort of flow. I mean, I think a lot that what Hollywood produces today is more franchises, it's more superhero mm-hmm. films, it's it's horror films on a lesser scale with lower budgets, which do well financially. So, uh, give, me, give me some examples of sort of the, the American nationalism you're talking about, because I I want to I want to dig deeper here. Well, the and you've absolutely stumped me in the moment because you're the movie critic and I'm not. Let me give you a more concrete political example. In the time shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union, the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, there was just enormous demand, and it was VHS tapes at the time, there was enormous demand for VHS tapes with American movies, and it was typically gung-ho action hero American Mm -hmm. movies, the Rambo types. And if you go to Cuba now, might be illegal for you to go to Cuba, but I've been there a couple of times, and uh, they talk um, perhaps cynically about the Cuban internet. The Cuban internet means USB sticks, and they trade pirated uh, American, mostly movies and TV series. And there's an insatiable appetite for all things American. And that's just an enormous amount of soft power that the US as a regime gets. And I'm just thinking, you know, okay, the Hollywood uh, liberals tend to work in a bit of criticism uh, of the, the, you know, US power structures in there. Couldn't they hold their nose? Couldn't they, you know, like put up with that, given how much it gives them in terms of international soft power? Well, I think the actors themselves are thinking more about their careers and maybe specific messages they share on, say, social media than sort of the soft power argument, which is, again, is true, is valid. I also think you mentioned this sort of the fall of the Soviet Union. During the 1980s, there was a lot of Rambo-esque movies. I mean, that was the age of Stallone and Schwarzenegger, Steven Seagal, Bruce Willis. So I think the sort of that soft power, that sort of rah-rah macho U.S. image was mm. definitely front and center at that time. And you know, there was even a documentary, I think it might have been Chuck Norris and Communism, something like that, that talked a little bit about sort of the how those kinds of movies were being seen over, overseas. So yeah. uh, it's an interesting point, but I, I think that the Hollywood product has changed pretty dramatically since then. We still get the kind of the action movies, the John Wicks, the Atomic Blondes, but you don't get mm. that Rambo-esque storytelling like you did in the 80s. One series that I followed very closely over now, sadly, but was really excellent. I thought Homeland, and that evolved quite a lot during the various series. But the first few series were criticized quite sharply for being essentially racist. And there was one incident where uh, I thought deliciously a couple of uh, 
Arabic students or Arabic speaking students were uh, hired as uh, to do some set dressing and to do some Arabic graffiti on uh, a set that was meant to look like an Arabic uh, market. And they wrote in Arabic all over the place, Homeland is racist. They certainly felt that. But it evolved towards being much more introspective about the US. Is that the sort of thing that you're talking about? That uh, And there was a, essentially an Alex Jones type character that who was a villain very much in that. Is that the sort of thing that you're talking about? That there's a pressure from uh, the actors, the writers, those type of people. They don't want to be seen to be too red-roaring nationalists in the American sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good example of storytellers who heard the critiques, reacted to them directly, mm-hmm. and they show that change, like you said, dramatically in its approach. So I agree. I also think that just having – I've been following – I mean, I've been watching movies forever, and I've been doing it professionally for a couple decades now. Today's Hollywood is much more active, much more activist, and much more willing to – send a message through its stories. And never before, uh, we see that a lot on television, uh, a lot of anti-gun messages on different stories. It, it, it's almost like the script will stop cold to kind of leave a message, and then mm-hmm. the story will resume. So absolutely. And uh, I, I think The Homeland is a great example. Uh, and another quick point is I think while the soft power argument is valid, I think that sometimes uh, U.S. studios are wary of being too rah-rah. And just a quick example, the movie First Man, which came out late last year, which was about the uh, Neil Armstrong and landing on the moon, and there was a lot of kerfuffle in the United States about the movie didn't show the astronaut planting the U.S. flag on the moon. And oh, the, wow. the director had talked – you know, this was his artistic choice, which is well and good, but it was it was seen by some as saying, well – if the movie wants to sell overseas, it might be too pro-America and that if you know overseas audiences get that, they may be less willing to accept it, to buy tickets for it. So some people thought of it as more of a, a pragmatic decision to kind of appease overseas audiences. You may or may not be correct, but whoever made that decision, if they were making it on that basis, I think they were entirely wrong. They made the wrong call. That's an incredibly, you know, iconic moment. I don't think anybody anywhere around the world could fail to be moved by that, even if it's the US flag that's being planted on the moon. But one issue that I wanted to move along to, isn't it true that if you're going from the fool in King Lear forwards, it's always the case that the actors, the performers in the society, it's their duty to go against the grain to be essentially anti-establishment. In comedy in particular, comedy always has a victim. If you're punching down, that gives a ugly type of comedy. Any decent comedy is punching up, and that means they're essentially criticizing the people in power. I agree, but for eight years during the Obama administration, comedians basically laid down their their comic weapons. Uh, the show Keen Peel on Comedy Central basically defended President Obama against his critics. Saturday Night Live was so meek towards President Obama, the actor who played him was quoted saying they gave up on that whole Obama thing. So for eight years, comedians didn't speak truth to power. For eight years, actors like uh, Jack Black actually did propaganda work for the administration. So I understand what you're saying. I I think there's a real great place, especially in American culture, for kind of poking and prodding the powerful. But 
it really is more based on ideology than who is in power because while it's all happening now with President Trump, it didn't happen during the Obama years. That may well be true. And I think John Stewart at least has has acknowledged that uh, George W. Bush was a better foil for him than was Obama. I don't know what would have happened if he hung around to into the Trump era, but that's a different uh, that's a different story. But I'm thinking of moving on from the Me Too and this uh, very critical culture that we're moving into. And just recently, you'll be aware Liam Neeson made fairly a fairly complex statement of how he felt and what he did after someone close to him was raped. Do you think? And also, I'm thinking maybe of um, Kathy Griffin, who was. Um, eviscerated really when she posed with uh, a model of a severed head of Donald Trump. This, I think that no matter who it's attacking, this culture is just terrible. It really has no subtlety and no depth of understanding at all. Would you agree with me? I completely agree. I think often context is not only just ignored, but is pushed out the window. I think in the case of Kathy Griffin, there is a tradition in the United States where you don't physically or posed to threat the president. And I don't care who the president is. I, I think that's wrong. And I think that's sort of a good thing. I mean, I think that it's wait, bad wait, wait, to mock wait, wait, the Wait, 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 go back, go, go back. You said we should, that Kathy Griffin should have been criticized for that because she shouldn't go after the president? I, to me, there is there's a kind of a, there are very few things you can't do with comedy, with commentary. But for years and years and years, it's been the tradition in the United States that you do not threaten the president and there, I mean, I think she had a visit from the Secret Service after that particular incident. Some other people have as well. So, was there I, anybody? I'm, was there anybody on the face of the earth who seriously believed that there was even the remotest chance that Kathy Griffin was actually going to cut Donald Trump's head off? I completely agree. It is a silly use of power. Uh, it is sort of the tradition in the United States that it's hands off on the president. You can make fun of him or her. You can mock them. You can do any sort of situation or, or scenario. But when it comes to threats on life, pretend threats on life, things like that, mm-hmm. the Secret Service, for better or worse, does take it seriously. But I will say what's interesting about the, the culture in the U.S. right now when it comes to this outrage machine is that it's very selective. Uh, you know, Kevin Hart was uh, given the Oscar hosting gig, but because he had told some jokes that were homophobic around eight or so years ago, he lost the gig. And yet the person who hosted the last two years, Jimmy Kimmel, has donned blackface multiple times, has told very sexist jokes in the recent past, and uh, he was allowed to host not once but twice. And so that's some of the things that yeah, I yeah, wrote on pause, pause on that. Pause on that for a second, yeah. Chris, because when you make that comparison, isn't that in danger of losing the subtlety as well? Because it's easy to make a headline out of a joke or out of an act that doesn't get the subtlety of what somebody is saying. And it is very likely to be the case that in some cases, and I don't want to refer specifically to the people that you're talking about, but in some cases, that might have been a very, very reprehensible piece of not very good work. In other cases, it might have been something that was either fair game or something that was a subtle take on an issue. Listen, I agree that many times we just hear the face value headline and we get shocked and outraged. You know, back in the 1980s, if a comedian dressed up in blackface to perform as someone else, 
no one blinked an eye. Uh, Billy Crystal would play Sammy Davis Jr. and he would darken his skin to complete the visual effect mm-hmm. and no one cared. But he wouldn't dare do that today because the culture has changed and we're more – we're more sensitive to issues of the minstrel shows and blackface back in the day and mm-hmm. how much racism was baked into it. So there's lots of different nuances here. But but one of the things that I point to is sort of the inconsistency of attack where if you look at what Alec Baldwin, the actor, has done over the last 10, 20 years, he's been accused of hurling uh, you know, ep- uh, homophobic epithets. He allegedly uh, struck someone recently in a New York City incident. He's, he's got a he short fuse. He's got a short fuse and he's a very talented actor, but none of those incidents have derailed his career at all. He's still on Saturday Night Live every other week doing his mm-hmm. Trump impression. He gets work. He gets gigs. And he has done a lot of things which, if done by someone else, might be deemed too outrageous. He might be you know, uh, censored. He might be losing his gigs. So that's one of the things that I, I focus on with my work is sort of the inconsistency of the outrage. And is, is, if you're, if you're upset about this, you should be that. Chris, 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 isn't the ins- doesn't the inconsistency flow from one thing, money? No, not necessarily. I, it, 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 it more often flows from ideology because Alec Baldwin is a very left of center soul. He does a wonderful job of eviscerating Trump on Saturday Night Live. And I think that some people say, well, you know, sure, he's a bad guy, but he's doing good things for the cause and they're going to go with him and they're going to stick with him. Mm-hmm. Whereas Kevin Hart, who's a pretty down the middle kind of a guy, he doesn't get very political. But if he was a hard left person who was attacking Donald Trump left and right in the middle, I think he would have had a measure of cultural protection when those homophobic jokes had come out. That's my theory. That may well be correct. I'm actually less interested in that than in the type of situation that happened to Liam Neeson. Liam happens to be Irish, like me. So maybe I'm being overly sympathetic. But I think that what Liam Neeson said had real subtlety to it. And it was really a bearing his soul moment. And he was trying to essentially explain how he could understand racism because he had felt those feelings. And he was doing that from a position of saying that, you know, he had learned something about himself that he was scared of. And he tried to make a subtle point that was shorthanded into a four-word headline that said Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson is a racist. That might not be four words, but you get the point. It was yeah. It was incredibly, incredibly misleadingly represented. And I don't know whether he's particularly known for his politics, but I'm pretty sure he's he's not a conservative person. It looks entirely like he's likely to. Uh, lose work over that and actually I don't care Liam Neeson's a rich guy I don't terribly think that's you know an injustice that I would be out in the streets fighting over but what I'm really concerned with is that what he actually said was completely lost that's a real danger isn't it oh I completely agree and I completely agree with the way you framed it it was a confession it was him saying hey Sometimes we all have hate in our hearts. Sometimes we all think of things that are deep and dark and terrible and wrong, Mm -hmm. but that we move past them. And it was a very confessional moment. Now, I have to say, as someone who studies Hollywood, I would have advised him, don't ever, ever say that because the culture is at a moment where we don't look at context. We don't look at the nuances. We don't look at the subtlety. We don't look at the, the potential for growth within a human being. We look at Liam Neeson said something racist, Uh and that's the way it's framed. So 
I, if I were his advice, I just would have never said to go there. But listen, he's but hang an on actor. A second. Who, no, hang on a second. Yeah. Doesn't that really speak to the place of the arts? Sure, if you were his advisor, maybe if you were his financial advisor, you'd have said, stay away from that. But he's, mm-hmm. at this stage, a multimillionaire. He can afford never to work again. Isn't that the sort of person we need to tell the truth? And I note, and I don't want to, you know, make anybody a spokesperson for all black people, but I note that Whoopi Goldberg was out like a shot saying Liam Neeson is not a bigot. And um, you may not be familiar with John Barnes. He's uh, quite a well-known figure in the UK, a, a footballer. He's black. He came on and said Liam Neeson deserves a medal because he had explained what black people face. And he, John Barnes was very clear that he did not think that Liam Neeson was a bigot, but that is something that can exist in the heart of white people, or maybe all people, even though they consciously know what they should do, they need to acknowledge, we all need to acknowledge that we have some feelings deep down that we might prefer that we don't have. Isn't that the role of the arts? I would say that what Whoopi Goldberg said was actually almost more important than what Liam Neeson said in that she is defending him, defending him as a person, defending his right to speak, defending his right to evolve. And I think that's the sort of the one two punch. If he if Liam really wanted to send an important message to the culture and that was more important to him than future gigs and all the power to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a voluntary effort, which is the thing that leaves me scratching my head. It wasn't like he was caught doing something or, you know, there was a, a, an audio confession that he that was released and he had to explain it. But I, I think what we need to have in our culture is more people with cultural power like a Whoopi Goldberg to say, hey, I know him. Don't judge him based on this anecdote. Judge him by the fact that I've known him for years. I've worked with him, whatever the connection they have. He's not a racist. I think that's really what's important. And it, it was one of the interesting things about the Roseanne Barr situation when mm-hmm. you know she came back on Roseanne. It was a huge hit. And then she made this horrible, racist, dumb tweet. And she lost everything. Yeah. And there were people who knew her, who knew how hard she worked behind the scenes to hire minorities into key writing positions on her show. And to me, that is more important than a one single really dumb potentially very racist tweet because in her heart in behind the scenes she was helping people of color whereas just that one tweet over over overshadowed everything and i i, I almost wish that more people had spoke out again for her yeah maybe so i think that also her firing was something really quite complex and it is not something that's well condensed into a headline can i suggest that perhaps and it was i think abc and disney who who fired her and very very quickly can i suggest that the reason that they did that was perhaps not so much for what she had said but for what she might have said next and that if they were to take the hit for that and ride out the controversy and then Roseanne Barr being Roseanne Barr came out with something else that was also outrageous, that that would be likely to do them a huge amount of damage. And I want to, I'll leave that point hanging because I want to roll that Mm. really into my last question. And I note that the Chinese government, or perhaps not the Chinese government, but companies owned effectively either by the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party or the Chinese military, are buying up cinemas all over the United States. If you're sitting this weekend in a movie theater anywhere in the US, there's a very high chance that that movie theater is owned by a an entity that is effectively owned by the Chinese government. 
isn't it the case that what is happening here is money? That's the reason why you don't get Chinese bad guys in movies anymore. I know there's been at least one movie where they went back and digitally re-edited it to delete the bad guys from being Chinese and to drop in digitally North Korean flags instead of Chinese ones in order not to offend China. It's money. That's why all of this happens. Isn't that true? That's where a lot of this happens. I think the movie you're referring to was Red Dawn, the remake That's from a couple one, of years yes, ago. That's the one, yes. I was trying to get the, the name. It wouldn't come yeah, to no, my mind. Got, Thank you. You described it perfectly. So yeah, that, that is true. And I also think it's interesting because there are some uh, free speech issues to be kind in China, and yet actors routinely don't speak out against China, against Chinese issues, because they know that China is a huge market, not just with the theaters owned in the United States, but over, you know, obviously in China, mm. it's a movie going public that loves to check out films. And if they do certain things or say certain things, those films won't appear. There have been artists who have said, you know, I don't want to have my work restricted or censored or tweaked or edited, but if it has to get that way to be played in China, they accept it. And I think Quentin Tarantino's films have been there. So, yeah, there there's a huge issue there. And I think a lot of the most outspoken people in Hollywood are quiet on there. The one exception is Richard Gere, who's been mm. very critical of China. And he has said he has lost gigs because of it, because the major studios don't want to touch him for that reason, that he often works in smaller independent films where the risk isn't as, as magnified. So uh, check out Richard Gere on the issue. He's very interesting to, to listen to him speak. I will certainly do that, and I'll put a link to any information I can get about that in the notes for this podcast. Christian Toto, editor of HollywoodInToto.com and presenter of the Hollywood in Toto podcast, thank you very much for talking to me. This is fun. Thanks so much. Never miss a show. You can subscribe to the podcast for free using iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast software or app. See challengingopinions.com backslash subscribe for details. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter, and follow Christian Toto at Hollywood in Toto. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or topic for a future show. And thanks to everyone who signed up as patrons on Patreon so far. I really appreciate that. It means that I can devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's March 18th, I'll be talking to Kathy Reisenwitz about why she loves cities and how they can be improved. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.